Part three, chapters thirteen and fourteen of Democracy in America, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, Volume Two by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, chapter thirteen. That the principle of equality naturally divides the Americans into a number of small private circles. It may probably be supposed that the final consequence and necessary effect of democratic institutions is to confound together all the members of the community in private as well as in public life, and to compel them all to live in common. But this would be to ascribe a very coarse and oppressive form to the equality which originates in democracy. No state of society or laws can render men so much alike but that education, fortune, and tastes will interpose some difference between them, and though different men may sometimes find it their interest to combine for the same purposes, they will never make it their pleasure. They will therefore always tend to evade the provisions of legislation, whatever they may be, and departing in some one respect from the circle within which they were to be bounded, they will set up, close by the great political community, small private circles united together by the similitude of their conditions habits and manners in the united states the citizens have no sort of preeminence over each other they owe each other no mutual obedience or respect they all meet for the administration of justice for the government of the state and in general to treat of the affairs which concern their common welfare but i never heard that attempts have been made to bring them all to follow the same diversions or to amuse themselves promiscuously in the same places of recreation the americans who mingle so readily in their political assemblies and courts of justice are wont on the contrary carefully to separate into small distinct circles in order to indulge by themselves in the enjoyments of private life each of them is willing to acknowledge all his fellow-citizens as his equals but he will only receive a very limited number of them amongst his friends or his guests. This appears to me to be very natural. In proportion as the circle of public society is extended, it may be anticipated that the sphere of private intercourse will be contracted. Far from supposing that the members of modern society will ultimately live in common, I am afraid that they may end by forming nothing but small coteries. Amongst aristocratic nations the different classes are like vast chambers, out of which it is impossible to get, into which it is impossible to enter. These classes have no communication with each other, but within their pale men necessarily live in daily contact. Even though they would not naturally suit, the general conformity of a similar condition brings them nearer together. But when neither law nor custom professes to establish frequent and habitual relations between certain men, their intercourse originates in the accidental analogy of opinions and tastes. Hence private society is infinitely varied. In democracies, where the members of the community never differ much from each other, and naturally stand in such propinquity that they may all at any time be confounded in one general mass, numerous artificial and arbitrary distinctions spring up by means of which every man hopes to keep himself aloof, lest he should be carried away in the crowd against his will. This can never fail to be the case, for human institutions may be changed, but not men. Whatever may be the general endeavour of a community to render its members equal and alike, the personal pride of individuals will always seek to rise above the line, and to form somewhere an inequality to their own advantage." In aristocracies, men are separated from each other by lofty stationary barriers. 
In democracies they are divided by a number of small and almost invisible threads, which are constantly broken or moved from place to place. Thus, whatever may be the progress of equality, in democratic nations a great number of small private communities will always be formed within the general pale of political society, but none of them will bear any resemblance in its manners to the highest class in aristocracies. Chapter 14 Some Reflections on American Manners Nothing seems at first sight less important than the outward form of human actions, yet there is nothing upon which men set more store. They grow used to everything except to living in a society which has not their own manners. The influence of the social and political state of a country upon manners is therefore deserving of serious examination. Manners are, generally, the product of the very basis of the character of a people, but they are also sometimes the result of an arbitrary convention between certain men. Thus they are at once natural and acquired. When certain men perceive that they are the foremost persons in society, without contestation and without effort, when they are constantly engaged on large objects, leaving the more minute details to others, and when they live in the enjoyment of wealth, which they did not amass, and which they do not fear to lose, it may be supposed that they feel a kind of haughty disdain of the petty interests and practical cares of life, and that their thoughts assume a natural greatness which their language and their manners denote. In democratic countries, manners are generally devoid of dignity, because private life is there extremely petty in its character, and they are frequently low, because the mind has few opportunities of rising above the engrossing cares of domestic interests. True dignity and manners consists in always taking one's proper station, neither too high nor too low, and this is as much within the reach of a peasant as of a prince. In democracies, all stations appear doubtful, Hence it is that the manners of democracies, though often full of arrogance, are commonly wanting in dignity, and, moreover, they are never either well-disciplined or accomplished. The men who live in democracies are too fluctuating for a certain number of them ever to succeed in laying down a code of good breeding, and in forcing people to follow it. Every man, therefore, behaves after his own fashion, and there is always a certain incoherence in the manners of such times, because they are moulded upon the feelings and notions of each individual, rather than upon an ideal model proposed for general imitation. This, however, is much more perceptible at the time when an aristocracy has just been overthrown than after it has long been destroyed. New political institutions and new social elements then bring to the same places of resort, and frequently compelled to live in common, men whose education and habits are still amazingly dissimilar, and this renders the motley composition of society peculiarly visible. The existence of a former strict code of good breeding is still remembered, but what it contained, or where it is to be found, is already forgotten. Men have lost the common law of manners, and they have not yet made up their minds to do without it. But every one endeavours to make to himself some sort of arbitrary and variable rule from the remnant of former usages so that manners have neither the regularity and the dignity which they often display amongst aristocratic nations, nor the simplicity and freedom which they sometimes assume in democracies, they are at once constrained and without constraint. This, however, is not the normal state of things. When the equality of conditions is long established and complete, as all men entertain nearly the same notions and do nearly the same things, they do not require to agree or to copy from one another in order to speak or act in the same manner. Their manners are constantly characterized by a number of lesser diversities, but not by any great differences. 
They are never perfectly alike, because they do not copy from the same pattern. They are never very unlike, because their social condition is the same. At first sight, a traveller would observe that the manners of all the Americans are exactly similar. It is only upon close examination that the peculiarities in which they differ may be detected. The English make game of the manners of the Americans, but it is singular that most of the writers who have drawn these ludicrous delineations belong themselves to the middle classes in England, to whom the same delineations are exceedingly applicable, so that these pitiless censors, for the most part, furnish an example of the very thing they blame in the United States. They do not perceive that they are deriding themselves, to the great amusement of the aristocracy of their own country. Nothing is more prejudicial to democracy than its outward forms of behaviour. Many men would willingly endure its vices, who cannot support its manners. I cannot, however, admit that there is nothing commendable in the manners of a democratic people. Amongst aristocratic nations, all who live within reach of the first class in society commonly strain to be like it, which gives rise to ridiculous and insipid imitations. As a democratic people does not possess any models of high breeding, at least it escapes the daily necessity of seeing wretched copies of them. In democracies, manners are never so refined as amongst aristocratic nations, but on the other hand they are never so coarse. Neither the coarse oaths of the populace, nor the elegant and choice expressions of the nobility are to be heard there. The manners of such a people are often vulgar, but they are neither brutal nor mean. I have already observed that in democracies no such thing as a regular code of good breeding can be laid down. This has some inconveniences and some advantages. In aristocracies the rules of propriety impose the same demeanour on every one. They make all the members of the same class appear alike, in spite of their private inclinations. They adorn and they conceal the natural man. Amongst the democratic people manners are neither so tutored nor so uniform, but they are frequently more sincere. They form, as it were, a light and loosely woven veil, through which the real feelings and private opinions of each individual are easily discernible. The form and the substance of human actions often, therefore, stand in closer relation, and if the great picture of human life be less embellished, it is more true. Thus it may be said, in one sense, that the effect of democracy is not exactly to give men any particular manners, but to prevent them from having manners at all. The feelings, the passions, the virtues and the vices of an aristocracy may sometimes reappear in a democracy, but not its manners. They are lost, and vanish forever, as soon as the democratic revolution is completed. It would seem that nothing is more lasting than the manners of an aristocratic class, for they are preserved by that class for some time after it has lost its wealth and its power, nor so fleeting, for no sooner have they disappeared than not a trace of them is to be found and it is scarcely possible to say what they have been as soon as they have ceased to be. A change in the state of society works this miracle, and a few generations suffice to consummate it. The principal characteristics of aristocracy are handed down by history after an aristocracy is destroyed, but the light and exquisite touches of manners are effaced from men's memories almost immediately after its fall. Men can no longer conceive what these manners were when they have ceased to witness them, they are gone, and their departure was unseen, unfelt, for in order to feel that refined enjoyment which is derived from choice and distinguished manners, habit and education must have prepared the heart, and the taste for them is lost almost as easily as the practice of them. Thus, not only a democratic people cannot have aristocratic manners, but they neither comprehend nor desire them. 
and as they never have thought of them, it is to their minds as if such things had never been. Too much importance should not be attached to this loss, but it may well be regretted. I am aware that it has not unfrequently happened that the same men have had very high-bred manners and very low-born feelings. The interior of courts has sufficiently shown what imposing externals may conceal the meanest hearts. But though the manners of aristocracy did not constitute virtue, they sometimes embellish virtue itself. It was no ordinary sight to see a numerous and powerful class of men, whose every outward action seemed constantly to be dictated by a natural elevation of thought and feeling, by delicacy and regularity of taste, and by urbanity of manners. Those manners threw a pleasing, illusory charm over human nature, and though the picture was often a false one, it could not be viewed without a noble satisfaction. End of chapters 13 and 14